I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Imagine you lived in a country torn apart by civil war. You've watched friends and family struggle, starve, flee, and die. You and what is left of your family are barely able to find enough food to eat or clean water to drink, and survival is an everyday issue. Then all of a sudden the world takes notice, and men and women in bright blue berets and helmets arrive to help bring you the food and water you so desperately need and to try and put a stop to the horrors that have afflicted your country. Yet things don't get better immediately. And behind that barbed wire where the baby blue helmeted soldiers live and work, there is an immense amount of food and water and other goods that you could trade for food and water. So you steal. You find ways to sneak into that compound and you steal so your family survives. But you're not the only one stealing. And one day you're caught. And you just happen to be caught by Canadian soldiers, who by all historical accounts should treat you fairly. But this one regiment and this one group of Canadian soldiers, they are not the cream of the crop. In fact, many of them are the cast-offs from throughout the Canadian military, the problem soldiers. And they are not happy with you. What happens next becomes a stain on the history of the Canadian Armed Forces. This is Season 5, Episode 5, A Murder in the Desert, The Somalia Scandal. Today's book recommendation is by acclaimed Canadian military historian David Berkison. His 1996 book, Significant Incident, published by McClellan and Stewart. This is an excellent account of the events that occurred in Somalia and the narrative leading up to those events. It gives a really strong background to why the events occurred. So our story begins with the founding of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, 
the beginning of the C.A.R. lie with Lieutenant General Jean-Victor Allard, who in the mid-1960s envisioned the creation of an all-volunteer airborne regiment that would specialize in commando tactics modeled after the British Special Air Service, or the SAS. Effectively, the idea was to have an elite unit that would always be ready to react either to threats to Canadian territory or for overseas deployment. At the time that Allard was proposing this idea, it took up to two months to train, equip, and deploy any sizable Canadian force. His idea was that an airborne regiment would effectively man the front while a larger, more permanent force could be assembled and deployed. In 1968, this vision was realized with the creation of the Canadian Airborne Regiment. The regiment was a place where tougher physical training, sharper mental attitudes, and a higher level of technological know-how, coupled with small unit tactical training, all of it coming together into an effective elite force. The soldiers of the CAR were thus meant to be Canada's elite. Training would be similar to other elite units in the American and British militaries, with CAR members becoming proficient in tasks like mountain climbing, scuba diving, underwater demolition, clearing underwater obstacles, deep penetration patrols, and high-altitude low-opening parachute jumps. Colonel Don Rochester was chosen as its first commander, a man who had seen action during the Second World War in Europe, as well as the Aleutians campaign, and had stayed on after the war scene service in Egypt during Canada's famous peacekeeping deployment in the 1950s. One of the problems with the regiment, and this is highlighted very effectively by David Berkison in his book, is that the proliferation of the helicopter in most modern militaries had doomed any sort of mass airborne formation. Sure, special operations formations jumping in small groups still worked in penetrating enemy territory, but the idea of mass jumps by regiment size formations was in many ways obsolete by the late 1960s because of the speed and flexibility of helicopter transport. Even in the U.S., the world-famous 101st Airborne, who had dropped into Normandy in 1944, had changed their designation to include the term Air Mobile, effectively meaning that the 101st was now relying more on helicopter transport than actual parachute jumps. One of the interesting paradoxes of a volunteer airborne regiment is that the soldiers that end up serving within it are often some of the most eager soldiers who embrace quite an aggressive warrior spirit, which potentially poses issues in terms of discipline. The CAR needed these type of quote-unquote warriors and actively recruited them. However, it also meant that discipline was always an issue within the regiment. By the late 1970s, various commanding officers and NCOs commented on how it was often a difficult formation to have a command role within because of the strong personalities and gung-ho attitudes of its soldiers. Airborne members embraced the elite nature of their regiment, but they also chafed at traditional discipline, which many saw as part of the regime for regular non-elite soldiers 
the strict discipline of the military was not for the men of the C.A.R., and the C.A.R. embodied a growing rebellious spirit. The men trained hard and partied hard if the rumors surrounding the regiment's time in Edmonton are true. Regardless, the C.A.R. was deployed on numerous missions. Montreal in 1970 during the October crisis, Cyprus in the 1970s and early 1980s, However, the gung-ho and hyper-violent characteristics spilled out in Cyprus. In 1981, 60 soldiers from the regiment descended on a nightclub in Cyprus with bats and clubs and beat up a large number of men and women. This was in response to what was alleged to be a slight by a local Cypriot to one of the members of the regiment. This event if it were any other regiment in the entire Canadian Armed Forces, would have been a major scandal. Instead, it was covered up. The seeds for Somalia were already being sown. As the 1980s progressed, discipline issues became exacerbated throughout the regiment. While the various regimental commanders sought to right the ship, the attitude of disobedience had permeated much of the ranks, including the all-important non-commissioned officers, NCOs. The real problem lay in the fact that regimental commanders only remained in charge for several years before moving on to new postings. NCOs stayed for much longer. Effectively, the regiment's personnel remained, while the top brass stayed only temporarily. No long-term solution for a growing discipline problem could be maintained. For instance, for several years, the Confederate flag was adopted by various soldiers who started wearing it while in action and in training. Eventually, this was banned by one commanding officer. When that commanding officer left to go work for the headquarters, National Defense HQ, his successor was far less aggressive in banning this racist symbol. In another sign of discipline trouble between the officers and the other ranks, a private vehicle belonging to one of the captains was burned and vandalized with the regiment's routine orders on the floor of the car. This was a clear statement to any officer who sought to impose discipline on the now unruly regiment. In fact, Later investigations showed that by the early 1990s, there were several members of the CAR who belonged to active white supremacist organizations. In fact, the regiment started to become a dumping ground for bad apples. Soldiers that had discipline problems were often shunted off to the CAR, further adding to the problems within the regiment. In 1990, Colonel W.M. Holmes was appointed as regimental CO, specifically with the task of putting the regiment back together again. Now under him, acts of violence, drunkenness, disobedience all declined in 1991 and 92, but once again, command of the regiment would pass on before any long-term solutions could be applied. In 1992, June of 1992, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Morneau replaced Holmes. Incredibly, within months of the C.A.R. deploying to Somalia, Morneau would also be replaced, this time by Lieutenant Colonel Carol Mathieu, the man who would be responsible for the regiment in Somalia.
Folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on donations to keep this podcast going. If you go to our Facebook page or website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time or on a monthly basis, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations per episode. So if you want to donate like two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. You can access the Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash cool Canadian history. We survive heavily on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to all of you who have donated. We could not keep this going without your help. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. So now let's turn our attention to Somalia. By the late 1980s, Somalian President Major General Mohamed Syed Bar had become increasingly despotic in his rule over the country. Opposition to Bar's rule increased, and by 1990, the country was in full-out civil war. Eventually, opposition to Bar coalesced into a group calling itself the United Somali Congress, effectively a coalition of various interest groups, political parties, and Somali tribes opposed to President Bar's authoritarian rule. By 1991, this USC had defeated the last of Bar's troops. However, instead of staying united, the USC fragmented. Suddenly, Somalia was faced with numerous political parties representing a variety of both political and tribal groups, while fragments of Bar's military regime continued to resist as localized insurgencies. The country was in complete chaos, and sections of it were being carved off into regions controlled by warlords. The civil war had a devastating effect Somalia's civilian population. Food, medicine, supplies, water were all hoarded by the various warlords and kept for their soldiers. The civilian population was facing a massive humanitarian crisis that was already seeing thousands die from starvation, not to mention the horrible depredations by roaming bands of soldiers. Thus, in December 1992, the United Nations authorized a peacekeeping mission known as UNISOM-1, United Nations Operations in Somalia. Its purpose was to enter the country and ensure successful delivery of food and medicine to the desperate Somali people. Our Prime Minister at the time, Brian Mulrooney, offered a Canadian contribution of 750 personnel, the core of which was intended to be the Canadian Airborne Regiment. There was, however, great debate at National Defence Headquarters about whether or not the regiment should even go. Some felt that the regiment was simply not in a good place to be trusted with a peacekeeping mission in such a high-stress environment. Others felt that an operational mission would help it regain its edge and improve regiment morale. The latter debate won. 
it was deemed that the CAR was indeed ready for the mission and thus approval was given by headquarters to deploy the regiment to Somalia. The Canadian mission specifically was to pacify the region around the town of Belichuen, about 340 kilometers north of the capital Mogadishu. The Canadians would pacify by pushing out the local warlord and his forces, and then restoring civil order and imposing some form of government authority. They would then aggressively patrol the town and the surrounding region in order to maintain law and order. Now, conditions were terrible when the men first arrived in December of 1992. It was hot, dusty, dry, and there was little to no infrastructure in place. Water came only from water bottles. Meals were generally MREs, which were pre-made meals for soldiers in action. Flies were a constant irritant, and sanitation was almost non-existent. Despite the terrible conditions, at first the Canadians made great success. The local warlord's militia retreated from the region in the face of such a strong military presence. Soldiers began helping to rebuild local infrastructure like schools, wells, bridges, roads, and provided free medical care for local civilians. It seemed, on the surface, that the peacekeeping mission was going according to plan. However, behind the scenes, things were much different. One of the most frustrating elements of the deployment was dealing with small groups of local Somalis who repeatedly broke into the Canadian base and stole army goods, including food and water. It became very difficult for the Canadians to tell who was just stealing food or who might be an insurgent seeking to harm Canadian soldiers. By the end of January, this theft had become endemic. Food, water, ammunition, personal items, radios, parachutes, and a variety of other miscellaneous items were continually taken. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many Somalis were caught in the process of stealing. And normally, they would be released to their clan or tribal leaders, or once police were reestablished, to the authorities themselves. Yet... None of this seemed to deter any would-be looters. As the days went on, the captured looters were treated more and more roughly. As one officer stated, they were treated more and more as captured prisoners of war. To add to this, by late January, Canadian patrols were now being fired on by various local militia groups. When the Canadians returned fire on occasion, Somalis were wounded and some even killed. Tension was mounting on both sides. The peacekeepers were trying to help the people, but it seemed to the peacekeepers like they were starting to become the enemy. And to add to all of this, Canadians constantly found UN food supplies being hoarded or sold on the black market by various militia groups. 
the Canadians were not only becoming disillusioned with the Somali people, but were starting to question the efficacy of their own mission. A dangerous formula. The CAR, the core of the Canadian deployment, already with discipline issues, led the way in further erosion of morale. This was the backdrop to the horrible events of March 16, 1993. On the morning of March 16th, Major Anthony Seward, commander of two commandos CAR, ordered Captain Michael Sox, commander of four platoon, to set up a snatch patrol in order to catch an intruder. He told Sox to make an example of the intruder. Seward said, abuse if you have to, just make the capture. Sox then assigned the job to Sergeant Joseph Hillier's two section, telling them that they could, and I quote, beat the shit out of the prisoners, end quote. Thus, in the evening of March 16th, Sergeant Joseph Hillier's squad laid an ambush for a would-be Somali looter. They purposely left the gate open and lay in wait to catch the first unfortunate person to cross into the Canadian camp. That unfortunate person was 16-year-old Shadane Abukar Aron who at 8.45 p.m. snuck in through the open gate. Hillier spotted the teenager and chased him to a portable toilet where Arone was restrained, hands tied behind his back, and was dragged deep into the compound. Arone was roughed up and interrogated, all the while claiming he was looking for a lost child. By 10 p.m., Arone was left with Master Corporal Clayton Matchy and Corporal Kyle Brown, the two had been drinking and immediately began to beat up 16-year-old Arone. Over the course of the evening, several other soldiers came in and out of the space where Arone was now being tortured. Reports state how Matchy did most of the damage while Brown watched or helped. Arone was punched in his face, kicked in his body, and even had an iron bar smashed against his shins. By 11 p.m., Matchy was putting out cigarette butts on the soles of Arone's feet. During all this time, at least eight soldiers witnessed the torture and reported nothing. Other soldiers reported they had heard the sounds of the beating and screams from the teenager, but no one did anything. By 12.15 a.m., Arone was dead, tortured and murdered by a Canadian soldier while numerous others did nothing. A death while in custody automatically triggers an investigation within the Canadian Armed Forces, and this investigation quickly uncovered some serious wrongdoing. Within 48 hours of Arone's death, nine Canadian soldiers were being held on charges. Now, while in custody, Matchy attempted to hang himself, though unsuccessfully, However, it caused such brain damage that Matchy was no longer fit to stand trial. At the time, the inquiry and findings were kept out of the public eye. It was not until late 1994 when photographs of Arone being tortured, taken by Kyle Brown, were released to the Canadian media. A massive public outcry erupted. The then liberal government under Jean Chrétien, the, the government that followed Brian Mulroney's government, launched a public inquiry into the Somalia incident. 
At the same time that the public inquiry was launched and Canadians in both English and French were learning not only about the awful incident but about the general ill-discipline of the CAR, videos surfaced showing racist, neo-Nazi-inspired initiation rituals of members of the same regiment. This was the last straw for the Canadian government. On the heels of the Somalia murder, and now with this video surfacing, the CAR was officially disbanded in 1995. The final report of the Somalia Inquiry was a damning critique of the Canadian Armed Forces and the government that had rushed an ill-ready regiment into a hostile war zone with inadequate preparation or support. Simply put, the CAR should have never been in Somalia, and that lay on the doorstep of the Canadian Forces and the government. In the aftermath of the inquiry, public confidence in the Canadian Armed Forces hit an all-time low. In fact, the Somalia scandal did immense damage to Canada's eagerness for participation in peacekeeping, and the remainder of the 1990s saw Canada withdraw from international participation. Only after 9-11 did the Canadian Armed Forces once again find itself being sent abroad, but this time with a far different mandate than UN peacekeeping. What happened to the nine Canadian soldiers charged, you asked? Well, the charges against Machi were dropped, as his mental capacity was so deteriorated from the failed suicide attempt, he no longer posed a threat to the public. Kyle Brown was found guilty of second-degree murder and torture. He was dismissed from the army in disgrace, and then was released from jail on parole after serving one year. A Sergeant Mark Boland, who was in charge of watching Arone for a portion of the evening, was found guilty of negligent performance of duty, and given one year imprisonment, as well as a dismissal from the CAF, the Canadian Armed Forces. Major Seward was also found guilty of negligence performance of duty, and given three months imprisonment and dismissed from the Canadian Armed Forces. Captain Sox was found guilty of negligent performance of duty, demoted to lieutenant, and severely reprimanded. Five other Canadian soldiers were acquitted. The final report on the proceedings truly summed up the story of the Canadian Airborne Regiment in the murder of Arone. It stated, Once again, history repeats itself. Only the lower ranks have been made to account for the marked failures of their leaders. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.